You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Joseph Hogue. This is Matt Hall. This is Katie Brewer, and you're listening to the What's Up Next Podcast. Why do we make such poor decisions with money? Buy high, sell low. Buy high, sell low. I swaggered into the fidelity with my six-figure inheritance burning a hole in my pocket. I had cashed out my grandfather's index funds and was ready to invest like a young person. It was 1999 and I was a fourth-year medical student. At the end of so many years of education, I arrogantly thought myself at the top of my intellectual game. I took whichever broker the front desk handed me off to, encouraged him to put my money to work in the tech and healthcare funds that had gained the most over the last year, and took my first jump into the stock market. And then I watched helplessly as the tech bubble burst. It was 2000, the turn of the century. I dragged my battered and beaten portfolio to our family broker who worked for another investment firm. He quickly convinced me to sell everything at a 50% loss, the good and the bad, and start again with his company's funds. I sold at the bottom of the market and locked in my losses. Six months later, if I had just held off six months, the losses wouldn't have been nearly as brutal. I had made every tawdry mistake. I was overconfident. I had spent less time researching an investment advisor than I would have a car mechanic. I bought based on hype and not data or even common sense. I confused short-term investing with long-term strategy. I was intoxicated by speculation. And I was just like every other investor in America back then, as well as today. Buy high, sell low. After all these years, our communal mindset as investors has changed little. Why? Matt Hall is the co-founder and president of Hill Investment Management Group. His book, Odds On, details how he uses evidence-based investing, long-term planning, and behavior management to increase the odds of success for his clients. Matt, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I'm really excited to have you on. You are from St. Louis, and as we'll probably talk about later on the podcast, I did my residency at Washington University between 1999 and 2002. So there's some connections there we'll probably talk about later on in the podcast, but I lived there for three years and had a good time in St. Louis. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. I could actually walk to where you went to school from my house. So yeah, it's a great a great place to be in June, July, and August, I think. I like hot summers, but the winter's kind of tough. But I would also say I have an office in Houston, Texas, and that's where I would like to spend my winter. 
See, I'd say the exact opposite. Being in Chicago right now, St. Louis winters sound really nice to me. I remember lots of 30, 40, 50, sometimes even 60 degree days, whereas in Chicago, we just don't get those. So I guess it's all perspective. Right. Katie Brewer is an MBA, a certified financial planner and creator of Your Richest Life, a platform where she uses financial coaching to help busy individuals work to balance their professional and personal lives. She works with clients to relieve money-related stress by helping clarify goals, identify and eliminate obstacles to those goals, and create an action plan to achieve them. Katie, welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're happy to have you. And last but not least, Joseph Hogue graduated from Iowa State University after serving in the Marine Corps. He worked in corporate finance and real estate before starting a career in investment analysis. He has appeared on Bloomberg and CNBC and led a team of equity analysts for a venture capital research firm. He holds a master's degree in business and the chartered financial analyst designation. Joe, we're happy to have you on the show. Doc, thanks for having me. Good to be here. And and tell me, what's the difference, for instance, between a chartered financial analyst and a certified financial planner? Are they completely different things? Oh, they're different. He's got got mega nerd status. I've got minor nerd status. (laughs) Yes. And I hold that as a badge of honor, that nerd status. No, I I think the CFP is much more planning based. So you're going to get into more more like uh, insurance, retirement stuff. Chartered financial analyst is more analyst based, you know, stock picking and that kind of thing. As long as we're all nerds here, I think we'll be fine. Doesn't matter which flavor or color of nerd we are, as long (laughs) as we are. All right, Matt, I want to start with you. Tell us about your first job in the business. And was it what you expected? Well, my first job in the business, I write a lot about this in Odds On, a book I wrote that came out about four years ago, which means I worked on it about six years ago. And I wrote it because I had a mentor who had written 16 books, maybe 17 now. And I was frustrated that real people wouldn't read his books. They felt they were sometimes too technical. Some real people read them, but not as many as I had hoped. So I wrote my own book trying to make a lot of the lessons I thought needed to get understood and appreciated by a broader audience. I wanted to make those lessons palatable and understandable and appreciated by a bigger group. In the beginning of my book, I write a story about my first experience in financial services. And I would refer to it as the dark side. I saw people who were more interested in sales than they were in service and education. And it was really the classic picture of a brokerage firm. If you go back 20 years ago, it was 40 mainly men. We had a few female financial advisors, but mainly men focused on how much they could sell and what they could generate in commissions. And the training that was provided by the big firm was sales training. It had nothing to do with planning, nothing to do with understanding sort of the emotional strengths and weaknesses of investors. There was no philosophy. It was all sales driven and all really selfish. My experience in the beginning did not inspire me to want to dedicate my life to this category. I didn't really think there was anyone else doing it differently until I stumbled on a firm who was, and that sort of changed my life. I detailed that journey in the book, but there were so many examples, one of which in the very beginning I think about sometimes is I apprenticed underneath one of the most successful brokers in this office. And he came out one day after yelling at a bunch of his clients and he said, Matt, you know who the best clients are? And I said, who are they? He said, they're clients who are rich and dumb. They accept my direction and they're compliant. Those are the best clients for me. And he wasn't kidding. He was serious. And I believed him and he was super successful. But I come from two parents who are educators and this didn't feel right to me, what I observed. I was looking for something that more closely aligned with the values that I felt in my heart needed to be a part of my career. I just didn't know where to get them. 
And Joseph, you were a Marine. How did you transition from that into finances? And did you find your first experiences were similar to Matt's? Yeah, I got out of the Marine Corps, went to college, got a job in corporate finance, worked in commercial real estate, and loved the analysis, the investment side of it, but definitely saw Matt's perspective and that it is all about sales. Uh, I've worked in those boiler rooms and the brokerage houses where it is much more about what you can sell than how much money you can make for your clients. So yeah, that's kind of what pushed me into the analyst field rather than more of the brokerage, the sales and that kind of thing. Love looking at stocks, love looking at investments, but don't necessarily want to try to you know hard sell someone into them. Katie, it sounds like both Matt and Joseph were strongly affected by this sales culture that they grew up in, or at least experienced in their first jobs. How was it for you? You're a financial coach now. Did you start with that same type of experience? Yeah, I'm actually wondering if Matt and I started at the same firm because it sounds very, very similar. I started with a brokerage firm. It was very much drink the Kool-Aid, prescribe what we tell you to prescribe, don't ask questions. This is the proven formula. And if you embrace all of that and you don't ask questions, then you'll just be fine. So I actually had some people there that said, well, we're not sure if you're drinking the Kool-Aid like we told you to. And I was like, well, you know, maybe that's because I'm coming at it from a perspective of I actually wanted to help people, which is what I said I wanted to do when I went into this. And you guys are telling me, okay, the way that you help people is by prescribing exactly what we've told you without really doing any kind of due diligence into it, or really even thinking through if it was right for the client more than could we get sued for this. So that was kind of, unfortunately, the beginning of my career. Matt said there was about 40 guys that kind of made me laugh because I think in the region that I was in, there were like 40 reps and two of us were women. And whenever we went to events, people would introduce us and ask who we were married to. And I was like, what is this, 1950? (laughs) Come on, people, it's the 2000s. Matt, we're here to talk about behavioral finance, why people make the decisions they do. But I feel like we can't even start that conversation until we address something you said, which speaks to a lot of what Katie and Joseph were just saying. In your book, you say back then you realized that Wall Street was broken. Do you still feel that way today? No, I'm an optimist. So I want to believe there's a better future ahead of us. And I think there's been a big shift. I mean, if you think about how much more or how well-informed people seem to be today versus at least when I started. I think the obviously costs are way down. The options are way up. I think there's been a growing number of independent firms who have challenged the bigger dominant players. I think there are a lot of things to be optimistic about. The thing that inspires me the most and connects back to one of your original stories is if we start talking about money, not just how we make investment decisions, but how we feel and what it means to us and what power it has and how our parents talked about it or didn't talk about it. If we start talking about it and create some more awareness about how we make decisions and what some of our weak spots are, I think we're going to make a lot of progress. And it feels like that's starting to bubble up, starting to happen, behavioral finance and people thinking about why we make the decisions we made. And your story, if you think back to some of the reasons you made decisions around there. I've heard Michael Lewis, the great writer who's written a number of books that ultimately became movies, talk about how he made his own investment decisions. And he just did what his grandpa did and his dad did. People said, when you have a money decision, you just go down to this guy down the road and that's what we do. One of the lessons I've learned is you normalize the crazy. And so that what you did wasn't all that crazy. It was pretty normal. A lot of people would just do what their parents did. 
even without having talked much about it. I became fascinated early on in my career with not just what does the quantitative or technical information say we ought to do to be successful investors, but what can we learn about humans? Because ultimately, we don't work with machines, we work with human beings. So I hired myself a psychotherapist to help me get a little bit smarter and help my firm get smarter. That's been a big, important part of my journey. Joseph, humans make sometimes bad decisions. And I think that's what Matt is talking about, that human behavior plays a role. There's another place where many in America learn how to make important decisions, and that's the military. And I'm interested if your training as a Marine affected the way you looked at finances and maybe even your regimentation when it came to your own investing philosophy. That's a really good question, and I don't think I've got a good answer for it, actually. I think you know a lot of the traits and the characteristics that you can develop can do very well as, a, as an investor. Unfortunately, I think there's also a lot of traits that you learn that make you maybe even a worse investor. Things like the need or the necessity to make a quick decision, not necessarily good in stock investing, the confidence and that kind of pride that you build in the military. Also, not necessarily a great trait to have in investing because you get that overconfident bias where you think you can pick the next hot stock and you just end up trading in and out of stocks. I think it's uh, probably a good with the bad as far as what you learn in the military that can be applied to investing, sure. So Katie, we have financial professionals here, all three of you now talking about behavior. And that sounds like a far cry of the sales pitch that maybe you guys learned in your first jobs. I'm interested by this fact that you call yourself a financial coach. You don't call yourself a financial advisor. You don't call yourself a broker. Why financial coach? Honestly, I feel like a lot of people are overwhelmed with finances and a lot of people honestly are scared of being judged. I hear it over and over again if I talk to people that are interested in my firm's services, where either they'll recount a time that they worked with another financial professional and they felt like they were belittled or that they were judged or that somebody didn't listen to them. So I think through the firm's communications, I just wanted to make sure that people know that Working with my firm means that they can let their guard down, that they can actually talk about what's important to them, that there's no like right or wrong way to do things. And so that's kind of why we go about it that way. I almost equate coach a little bit with therapist, at least on some level. There's definitely some crossover. And I've heard you use the term financial trauma. And that sounds similar to what you were describing in the beginning of your answer. This idea that people have a lot of fear and anxiety from their previous experiences with money. Yeah, I think that's true. And then I think sometimes people build it up in their head to be a really big thing. I don't cut men off from working with me, but I also do work with quite a few women. And I find that sometimes as women, not only are we a little bit overwhelmed, but sometimes we want to know everything. We want to know 100% before we pull the trigger on anything. And sometimes that actually shoots us in the foot because you can't know everything. There are assumptions out there and nobody has a crystal ball as to what a market's going to do. That's sometimes a conversation that I have with either folks that are coming on or people that are ongoing clients. We need to know as much as we can, and then we need to actually implement. And I think that's why we go about it with a coaching mentality is that there's a focus on the planning, but there's also a focus on the action steps that we take to get there and me helping people through those action steps to be able to take it to the next level. Matt, she mentions taking it to the next level. And while reading Odds On, I get the impression that you came to 
the financial industry bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with a lot of great ideas and really hoping to help people. And at some point, you came to some of the realization that Katie's talking about is that maybe just understanding the right financial steps is only part of the process. And you mentioned hiring a psychotherapist to help you with your clients, et cetera. Talk to us a little bit about your health scare that you had while building your own practice and how it affected your view of how to help people with their finances. I hesitated to even put that section in the book and I'm so glad I did because it's actually been one of the most important things to share. And uh, I go for my checkup in two days, uh, still in monitored. I had a very scary experience where I was diagnosed with leukemia. They weren't sure what type it was. I'm doing well today. Many years ago, so I was 32, just after having started my own firm. So I worked in the brokerage industry. Then I got a job with an independent firm. That was a great experience. And then left with another person from that firm and started our own practice in 2005. I would say what I learned from my health experience, I used to think that people wanted you to answer all of the questions they would come to meetings with. I went to my doctor's appointment early on and I had a whole list of questions. Thanks to the internet, I had to really dug into chat groups and thought I, I knew everything I needed to ask him about the form of leukemia, the form of cancer I had, and how it was going to affect my life in the future. And he calmly said to me after I showed him the long list on a piece of paper, He said, Matt, I want you to do two things. I want you to take 400 milligrams of the medicine I'm telling you to take, and I want you to get on with your life. And that for me was both scary and liberating because a part of me was thinking, you're really not going to tell me the answers. And he said, I have the answers to these questions and I'm going to help you get them over time. But right now you only need to do one thing. You need to get the 400 milligrams into your body. And the second thing is you need to get on with your life. Came back to work shortly after this appointment and said, what does this mean for us? When we deal with a heavy fact finder, someone who wants to gather a lot of information to help them make smart decisions, we answer the questions. Are we adding to the anxiety? Are we helping? So we really spend a lot of time thinking about whether digging deep into the weeds is the best thing for us to do as the coach or the teacher or the real you know, servant to the investor. Are we really being helpful if we just keep going down the path of day to dig more and more questions, get into the weeds? That story and that experience really woke us up to whether what we had been doing was really the right path. Joseph, I feel like you had a wake up moment too. And you can tell me if you agree with me, didn't you lose almost everything in the real estate bubble at one point? I had a lot of my net wealth and more in real estate and rental properties. And the lifeblood of every rental property business is being able to refinance your properties, cash out, make changes and buy new properties. Of course, when the bubble burst, then that just dried up. Definitely a wake up call into overextending yourself as well as you know making those safer decisions in investments. Katie, it seems to me, as I hear these stories, what affects the way a lot of us teach about finances is not about the knowledge, but about some of these traumas that we've experienced. How much of your time is spent teaching people how to specifically invest and budget and plan versus working on their mindset and dealing with those previous traumas? I think it's a really good combination of both of them. I think that working with the traumas or things that maybe they've learned over time or that they've learned from their family that are not serving them all that well 
if you don't address those and you just keep prescribing and prescribing, you'll run into a point as a practitioner where you're just like, I don't understand why I keep telling them what to do and they won't do it. So I think it's a really good combination to take where you address things, we call them money scripts, things that you just automatically think about money or do with money that may not be serving you in the best capacity. And also looking at your goals and implementing things. Because I think if all you're doing is looking at your past, then you kind of get embroiled in it and you don't actually get out of it. But if you don't consider your past, then sometimes your behaviors are just on autopilot And you won't be able to break those behaviors and move into new, better behaviors that are serving you and your goals. Matt, speak to what Katie's saying a little bit. Are most people's money scripts, when left on their own, rational? Do people make rational decisions about money without help? My experience has been it's a mixed bag. I was just thinking about an example where someone who works with us proudly held up his iPhone at one point in our early part of our relationship and said, look, I've done it, man. I've done it. And what he was showing me was he had an empty screen or app where he used to have all the stocks he tracked. (laughs) And what he was saying to me is I did what I think you want me to do. I got rid of all that stuff I used to pay attention to. And when we started talking about how much time he spent every day tracking what he used to be invested in, it was a big time commitment, but it wasn't just the time, it was the effect or impact that monitoring those stocks had on him. I would say we've all got something that is a touchy spot or a weak point. I have another client. I said, have you ever talked to your kids about what your plans are for the future? And he said, no. And I said, why haven't you talked to him about it? And he said, because I'm afraid. And I said, what are you afraid of? And he said, I'm afraid if they know how much money they'll get, they'll piss it away. What if you told them that? What if you said, hey, what would make me sad would be blank. And what would make me proud would be this. What if you just facilitated a conversation? He goes, I don't know how that would go. I think a big part of what I've seen anyway, is we don't talk that much about money because it wasn't always modeled for us. We're not sure exactly what to say. And for people who have been successful, one of the big fears I see them having is that somehow their success will dilute the energy or the motivation or the ambition for the people they care most about. I wish that more of the practical, tactical, quantitative stuff was what everyone cared about. My experience tells me otherwise. People would rather that stuff be backstage and occasionally get an update, but want to talk more about how they feel, what they're afraid of, what they're ashamed of, what they're excited by. No one's going to volunteer that, but if you ask them the right questions, our meetings end up being more than half dedicated to updates and how they feel and what's going on versus the planning pieces of the puzzle. We still care deeply about those things, obviously, but in dealing with regular humans, I don't know that they want to know all the details of tax loss harvesting and rebalancing, though rebalancing is such an interesting example because it's doing what people really oftentimes, my experience has taught me, can't do for themselves, which is sell the thing that's done well and buy the thing that's done poorly. That sounds so straightforward, but it's very difficult to do. We're just not wired to do it for ourselves. Joseph, the downside to all these emotions is that we start taking actions that don't necessarily help ourselves. And so I want to get a little granular about some of the behavioral aspects of investing that hurt individual investors. You spoke about overconfidence a little while ago, but there are a few others I've seen you mention in an article. Another is anchoring. There's also confirmation bias and loss aversion. Most people understand what overconfidence is. Can you talk a little bit about what anchoring confirmation bias and loss aversion are? 
the tragic fact is, I guess, that really Wall Street and the media kind of plays into all of this in kind of an entertainment industry, right? They know that people are looking at the stock market over the last 10 years, getting 10, 14, 20% annual returns using that recency bias where people believe that things are just going to continue on as they are, despite history, despite evidently to the contrary. So they play into that fear of missing out and just pushing people into the next hot stocks. Recency effect or recency bias is probably the most dangerous right now because one, you've got the media playing into it, but also you've got all of the fun performance metrics that'll go out an ETF or a fund or an investment. A lot of times they'll list out their three, five, and 10-year performance. Well, in the past, that's always included a, a downturn as well. So maybe that 10-year performance wasn't so rosy. Right now, here we are, 2020, 10 plus years of a bull market, 12, 14% returns annualized. And people are looking at these funds saying, oh my God, that would be amazing if I could get 12 or 14% for the rest of my life. You just have to understand that doesn't happen forever. Another one that we've talked about, the confirmation bias. A lot of times when I see people trying to do their own investing, they're analyzing a stock or they get a theme or an idea in their head. And what happens is when you're researching that online, you're looking for opinions on that. You only pay attention to the facts or opinions that are backing that up, right? We just have a natural tendency to seek agreement in a lot of the analysis we do. So of course, what you want to do to combat that almost unconscious bias is you want to look for differing opinions when you're researching a stock or an investment. Look for opinions that uh, that conflict with your own and can really you know give you the other perspective and be open to that other perspective. Some of the other you know uh, mental accounting that a lot of people will say, well, hey, I've got my fun money account where I'm investing in every hot stock and penny stock I can find, but then I've got my retirement account and my kids' college account that I'm only investing in. Uh, you know, money market funds or bonds or, or something extremely safe. The problem this creates is that people tend to take more risk than they need to in their fund money account, right? The account that they don't care quite as much if it takes a loss or what, and then too little risk in some of their other accounts, their retirement account, the kid's college account. And you really need to take a whole approach to all of your different accounts. How much risk overall am I taking it? How does that play with my overall financial goals? Katie, Joseph just mentioned this idea of having the retirement account in just money markets. And that certainly makes me think of loss aversion. We are scared of losing to the extent that sometimes we miss the idea that we may be way too conservative. Is this something you're seeing with your clients? It's something where if I've been working together for a while with the client, then we have talked really thoroughly about the history of the markets, why we don't try to time in and out of the markets. So, I mean, I've kind of put it to clients recently as we know there's a storm coming. So instead of getting all of our stuff, packing up our house and moving to a different state, we put on our rain boots, we put on our rain jacket, and we have our umbrella handy and we're ready for the storm. If the airplane is having some turbulence, you don't just put your parachute on and jump out of the airplane, probably buckle your seatbelt, you stay in there, that kind of stuff. I did see quite a bit more when I was in the brokerage world where folks would just panic and immediately go to cash. And usually, unfortunately, the folks that did that were the ones that really, really, really needed to not do that. The ones who hadn't quite saved up enough, whose job stability was not all that great. And it just really kind of hurt my heart to see that because it would always be the folks that were going to be hurt the most that would do the things that were hurting them even further. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is 
there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Matt, as Katie was giving her answer, I thought of this idea of jumping in and out of the market. Are we such lousy investors because we don't understand market efficiency? Is that the problem with most people when they're trying to figure out their financial lives? I think people are busy and doing what's important and matters to them. And I don't know that everybody thinks that much about market efficiency. Or I have a thing I have taught a couple of times, efficient market hypothesis in five minutes or less. And most people, even if you really jazz it up, they just don't care. Um, <laughs> as I was listening to both Joseph and Katie talk, I am struck by how many times I see people, new clients we work with who feel when they come to meetings with us, they won't say this, but this is ultimately what comes out is 
they're ashamed in some way for decisions they've made in the past. Typically, when they come to us, they're making a choice or a decision to do something new because they're mad about something that's happened in the past. Right now, a lot of people don't get fired, advisors or investment strategists or whatever the client is doing now. They don't make a change because things are going pretty well. In terms of making changes, I think the next time there's a big disruption, you'll see more change in people choosing new folks. But I don't know that it's an efficient market thing. When you were a busy medical student becoming a doctor, I'm sure that you know, there were more important things to be thinking about than a semi-efficient version of capital markets. I think the thing that I just keep going back to in my own head is how can you build a resilient contrarian? I used to think of toughness, meaning you were stiff and you could withstand anything. And now I realize if you think about it in an earthquake, the buildings that remain after a significant earthquake are the buildings that sway. And so the question isn't how tough are you, how sturdy are you? It's how much can you give? How soft are your knees? And so I spend a lot of time thinking about the clients we work with and what they need to sway when the thing happens, whatever the thing is. It may not be a market shift. It may be something else is happening in their lives, but will they sway? That's a question. And we keep track of this in a profile, a little map that we have. We will say, is this client or is this person low attachment or high attachment? Are they highly attached to things that happen in the world and the news, watching CNBC and reading the papers and watching TV to help them make decisions? Or are they low attachment? They may watch the news or read the newspaper, but they do it for entertainment, not to help them make smarter investment decisions. Better we can stay in tune with like what every person needs and where their sort of weak spot is, the better we can help or support them and, and ultimately help them become that disciplined, resilient, truly tough, contrarian investor we want them to be. Katie, I saw you nodding your head as he was talking about sway and resilience. Does that ring true for you and your clients? One of my favorite questions to ask folks when they get worried about the news is, how does that actually affect you personally and your plan? And it's funny because people don't think about that in those terms until you ask them. A lot of times they're like, well, my dad called and he said I need to do this, or I turned on the news and they said I need to do this. So we always go back to, okay, well, for you individually, what are your plans and does this obliterate them or does it make it where we need to do something different or does this affect them at all? And I think a lot of times when we bring it back into that perspective, it really helps folks to right size <laughs> their thinking. I was nodding so much because it made me laugh when he told the previous story about the guy who was so proud that he's not tracking all of the stocks on his phone. And it sounded like that was probably a very high attachment person that he was able to get to be a lower attachment person. <laughs> Joseph, I want to move the conversation towards some solutions. One of your platforms is called Peer Finance 101. And in your about page, you talk about having people share their stories as opposed to having an expert tell them what they're supposed to think about finances. Talk to me a little bit about sharing with your peers and how that improves some of this issue. Sure. Listening to Katie and Matt, I can't help but feel a little envious. They get to you know have multiple touch points with clients. I get to, so to speak, talk them off of that ledge when they're about to make some of those decisions. And with my own business, I might not have that opportunity. It's a one directional medium sometimes. So helping people with their investment and that kind of thing, but not necessarily get that back and forth, slow down a little bit kind of idea. And I think that's where it is so important to have 
a support system and have a talking group among your friends where you can kind of talk about some of these problems beyond all the fancy terms for behavioral biases and all that. I think a lot of it is just a snap decisions that people make, whether it's selling low and buying high or something's happened in the market where they jump in and out or making some of those other decisions that we've talked about. Anytime you can have a sounding board, whether that's someone in your family, a friend, then it's going to force you to actually talk through it aloud and work through it rather than jumping on your investing platform and buying or selling a lot. Matt, in your book, Odds on Evidence-Based Investing plays a big role in what you talk about. Is evidence-based investing part of the answer of dealing with some of these behavior issues? Well, it is for us to the extent that it is core to our approach and our philosophy. So one of the things I was going to say as it relates to solutions is, I think no matter what you're offering, if you're working with clients, to be able to clearly articulate your philosophy or your approach or paint the picture of what success is going to look like, there's something liberating just in that. If you think about what's happening there, unlike in the old days where there were plenty of people who would sort of just do whatever someone wanted them to do or sell whatever someone wanted them to sell, if you have a philosophy that is based on data and evidence, then you're already starting from a place that feels sturdy and structured and like it has some boundaries to it. It's not free form. And so for us, it's core to sort of who our firm is and how the people who work here sort of believe investors can benefit from what the markets give. So that is part of how we paint the picture of success in the future. And I think that is certainly part of the solution is where are we going? What are we doing? Not just from a financial planning perspective, but also from a what does this firm value? What do we believe in? An evidence-based investment philosophy, to me, boils down to a slightly fancier version of index funds. If you like what index funds do, that's a super simple way to capture what the markets give you. If you want to capture the returns of global capitalism and get a little bit tilt to the factors, then you can get into the kind of stuff that we're into. But we have plenty of clients. They like that we have a philosophy, but they don't have to fall in love with it the way we do. There's a book written a couple of years ago called Radical Candor by a woman named Kim Scott, who was a Silicon Valley successful corporate executive person. I think Google was the company she worked with just before she wrote the book. But it's about how you can be truthful and compassionate at the same time. And I think for us, most of the people in the industry that I worked with, they didn't want to talk about anything emotional or behavioral because they had no training in that, in those categories. So they stuck to the spreadsheet because it was uncomfortable to go beyond it. Just as we were starting this podcast, I got a phone call from my friend, Carl Richards, who does sketches for the New York Times. His little sketches try to connect money and emotion. He's made a whole career out of that, trying to connect money and emotion in really simple sketches. I love not hiding from the thing that someone might tell us what scares them or the thing that motivates them or inspires them because we used to run away from that. That was one of the things I learned from my cancer experiences, like lean into some of this discomfort and figure it out and get a solution. So for us, getting the solution meant hiring someone to help us get smarter about going beyond the spreadsheet. One last thing on this, uh, one of the simple solutions, but when we hired someone to help us, she said, do you guys have Kleenex in your office? We said, no, why do we need Kleenex? We don't have any Kleenex. You need to get some Kleenex. It's amazing. About the same time we got the Kleenex, started getting smarter going beyond the spreadsheet. We needed the Kleenex. That people would talk about what really mattered to them and then ultimately tear up or show signs that they were really connecting to the most important stuff. And so that's been part of the solution for us. It's just sort of raising our game and getting ourselves equipped to have these kinds of conversations and ask the right kind of questions. 
Katie, let's talk a little bit about things that scare us. Not everyone is going to be lucky enough to be one of your guys' clients or to see your YouTube videos or blogs. We are most definitely at some point coming up on a major recession. How do we help people learn to deal with the fear and anxiety of a recession? What can we give them as advice, even if they are not our clients, to help them weather that storm? Well, I think just knowing that it happens and it's normal and that that's what markets do, that they contract and they expand. And we've had an expansion that has been actually a historical run-up, which is great, but they also have contractions and that's just part of a normal market cycle. If somebody has not really started investing or they haven't really paid attention all that much and they haven't been through 2009 or the tech bubble or anything like that, it can feel like new uncharted territory and that leads to panic. The news sometimes does not help um, (laughs) with those things. And so just folks knowing that the normal stock market is contraction and expansion, I think helps for them to not accidentally do something and realize losses, as Matt put it, that would hurt them down the road. Joseph, if people are not lucky enough to know Matt and Katie, but are looking for help, they're looking for financial advice, where do you tell them to go to make sure they stay away from the more sales pitchy part of Wall Street that we all know exists? Most of the financial media and Wall Street is that sales pitchy, that entertainment industry. So I would say first, there's no better source than going straight to uh, maybe some of the curriculum for the CFP, that uh, financial planner uh, designation. Learn how financial planning works. What's asset allocation? What's the appropriate level of insurance? And some of those ideas might seem a little odd for a CFA not to be pushing the analyst designation. But of course, that's I think that's a little bit more geared towards analysis, uh, stock picking, and maybe even portfolio management. So I would say for just the lay investor, someone that's worried about getting their finances right without professional help, do what the professionals do then. Go to your local library. You don't even have to buy the books. Pick up a few of the CFP books just on financial planning and retirement planning and really dig in. Make it your bedtime reading. There are a couple of books that I really enjoy prescribing to people because they fit in between being very complicated, which I think sometimes the CFP is overkill. But I really like the Carl Richards books. So Matt actually already mentioned him, but he has one called The One-Page Financial Plan. And it's essentially just coaching yourself through building a balance sheet and through what you need to know to be your own financial planner. That and the David Bach books, so those are a little bit older, but I feel like those are very easily digestible. He's got Smart Women Finish Rich. It's one that I have recommended over and over again. He's got Smart Couples Finish Rich, but I feel like those are along the same vein where it's good practical information. It's not prescribing anything that's too crazy. And it's something that I feel like somebody who wants to better themselves with their finances is going to be better off with some of those resources. On the actual money scripts, anything by Brad Klontz or Ted Klontz, they're actually two doctors who are financial therapists. Brad actually has his degree in psychotherapy, and then he specializes in finances. He's got the expertise, but he actually puts it into a format that's easily digestible so that you're not reading a psychologist's interpretation of money scripts, which can sometimes be confusing to somebody who doesn't already have a master's in psychology. 
I love that we're ending here because as I go back to my introduction story, the thing I was missing was knowledge. If I really wanted to behave better with my money, I had to put a little bit of time and energy into learning about it. And if I didn't want to do it on my own, I needed to research the appropriate people to teach me about it. And I didn't do that. And so it's no surprise that I did exactly the wrong thing with my money at that time in my life. And I think that you guys have summed it up perfectly. So I'd like you all to have a chance to tell us what's up next in your life and where we can find you on the internet. Matt, let's start with you. What's up next with your life and where can we find you? Well, I'm really passionate about it. I started a podcast last year and did season one and just starting season two, recording those. And it's called Take the Long View with Matt Hall. Take the Long View is sort of the mantra of my firm. It's what we get people to sort of repeat back, sort of ignore the apocalypse of the day and, and have a bigger, broader perspective and don't let some of the noise get in your way. So what's up next for me is spending a lot of time on my Take the Long View podcast and continuing to help the kind of people who want to delegate and like my approach and are fun to work with. Joseph, where can we find you and what's up next in your life? Well, what's up next, I guess, is just really connecting with the community there on Let's Talk Money on YouTube. I've been blogging, talking to people about their investments, about their personal finance since 2014 online, but just since 2017, I've started the YouTube channel and love that face-to-face interaction that you get through video. Love talking about beating debt, making money, and really just making your money work for you. Let's Talk Money on YouTube. I just passed 150,000 people in the community and uh, love to see everybody there. And Katie, where can we find you and what's up next in your life? My website is yourrichestlifeplanning.com. If you don't want to type that many words, it's yrlplanning.com. And there's a blog on there where we, every other week, publish some kind of article that's helpful. So the most recent ones have been on how to loan money or if you should loan money to family members. So we like to do a combination of ones that are more technical and ones that are a little bit less technical um, back and forth. I kind of recently started up a YouTube channel. You can find that at YouTube and then search for Your Richest Life. So that's another way that we've been kind of taking some of the blog material and putting it out there for folks that like to watch videos rather than read. I have actually been doing some speaking engagements for medical schools, which has been a whole lot of fun. Just did one recently at UT Southwestern. And that's kind of a little bit of a passion project. I don't get paid a darn thing, but I'm able to kind of get to some of those residents or folks that are about to go out into the world and at least give them kind of a, here's what to watch out for. And here are the things that you can avoid over the first couple of years of becoming a doctor. So that's something that's been kind of my passion project on the side. All right. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Joseph Hogue, Katie Brewer, and Matt Hall. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. 
Welcome back. We're here with David Blobaum. He is a University of Chicago grad, a small businessman, and the managing partner of Summit Prep. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach G, for having me. My pleasure. It is wonderful to have you here. You are part of our Facebook group, and you said some interesting things about how we can thrive despite the shelter-in-place and quarantining. But before we do that, talk to us a little bit about Summit Prep. I graduated from University of Chicago in 2010. I had actually gotten a job offer from the CIA to be a leadership analyst in Pakistan. Their long scope background check, it actually takes like nine to 12 months. So I was going through all of that, got the polygraph. That was not fun, (laughs) Um, but I was looking forward to that. But I needed something to do in the meantime, right? Uh, As I was waiting for that to clear. And uh, so I just started tutoring part-time and I absolutely loved it. So I love helping people and I love education. So the combination of helping people through education was just a dream come true. I actually withdrew my offer from the job offer to the CIA and just took up tutoring full-time then. Launched my own company in 2013 with a classmate of mine, and it's, it's been great ever since. You just seem to be a jack of all trades and a student of learning. I was looking at your bio, and you got a pretty broad education. Yes, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. (laughs) So I absolutely just love learning and I see a lot of practical applications of it as well. So, you know, college, I was taking philosophy, the economics, really anything I could learn. I, I just try and soak it all up if I can. So today, as of April 15th, 2020, we are in the middle of shelter-in-place or quarantine in pretty much most of the United States. And if you go through your Facebook feed, there's a lot of talk about people languishing, sitting on the couch, watching Netflix. I noticed that you feel like this is a time where people can actually improve themselves, improve their businesses, and that quarantine doesn't have to be a waste of time. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So in talking with a bunch of colleagues uh, within the tutoring community, a lot of them are just seeing massive drop-offs in the number of students that are looking for tutoring, particularly for SAT and ACT prep, because two SATs have been canceled. One ACT has been canceled. June SAT and ACT might be canceled. Um, So a lot of students are, as you said, they're languishing, right? Just watching Netflix, watching TikTok videos. We really take a different approach. And so I like to give one anecdote and also some background for my students to help them understand why this is an unprecedented opportunity in their lives to really give themselves an advantage. The first thing that I talk to them about is Isaac Newton. So in 1665, the Great Plague was absolutely ravaging London. It it doesn't even compare to the coronavirus today. Between 1665 and 1666, 25% of London's population died from the the Great Plague. Trinity College, where Isaac Newton was going in Cambridge, just like today, they dismissed all their students and said, go home. So he went home to the countryside, but he did not use that time just wasting it. What he did is... He made unbelievable strides and improvements in our understanding of gravity and optics. And he actually, during that time, invented calculus. Um, When historians look back at that time, they actually call that time between 1665 and 1666 his year of wonder. According to him, it was his most productive time in his entire life was that time spent in quarantine. So I try and inspire my students with that as well. And... Even the data today bears that out. So one interesting, what I found actually most interesting in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, 
was a, a really like a small piece where in it where he talked about the wealth and education gap. And we might think that the wealth and education gap comes from better connections or better schooling or you know a plethora of advantages that come from being wealthy. Well, what he found is that the primary determinant, in fact, the sole determinant of the wealth and education gap was actually from how people spent summers, not how they spent the school years. So he looked at the gap in education between the wealthiest and the poorest kids starting in first grade. And the wealthiest kids came in with a 9% advantage and 9% better in education. By the end of the summer of fourth grade, they had a 36% advantage. All right. But okay, that might have been from schooling. But then he actually tracked their improvement during school and the wealthiest and the poorest kids improved at the same rate during school. It's just when everybody else stopped working, that's when the wealthiest kids kept working through summer. So 24% of everything the kids learned between first grade and the end of summer of fourth grade, 24% was not from what they learned in school. It was from what they learned in summer. So I apply that to today. What are people not doing? They're not working just like they are in summer, right? So when's the time to gain that advantage? What are the wealthiest families doing? They're using this time to keep the foot on the gas and gain a massive advantage. We use that to inspire our students and they're really soaking it up. I mean, about 20% of our students have doubled, tripled, quadrupled their amount of tutoring because there's fewer SATs and ACTs left. So they see, okay, let's margin for error. So I'm going to prepare even more. And in an age where more schools are going test optional, but more kids, students will still submit scores. They're saying, I'm going to nail these tests and they're going to end up with a, the best advantage that they've ever had. So do me a favor and translate this from students to small business people. I mean, we're calling this the great mm-hmm. pause. From listening to what you suggest with students, this might be a time for small businesses to really work on pivoting. Absolutely. I love metaphors and analogies, so forgive me if I'm giving too many, but I'd like to make that pivot to small business owners, give another example from a famous person, which would be Abraham Lincoln. He famously said that if you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I'm going to spend four hours sharpening the axe. Now, that might seem like an obvious metaphor what the meaning is, but I just want to flesh it out a little bit more. So let's say you have a dull axe. You start you know, hacking at that tree. You're going to make some gains in it. You're going to start chopping it down, um, but you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be sweating. You're probably, your hands are going to blister. You might, might not get it chopped down in six hours. But if you spent four hours sharpening an axe, once you actually start working on it, even if you're a much weaker man, which would benefit someone like myself, <laughs> you're going to get it chopped down much faster. So it's that preparation, that time spent not getting paid can actually be your highest earning time. And I have a huge, you know, a, a robust philosophy on the most you ever make is when you're not getting paid because you're getting paid into later. So for that small business owner, it's putting in the time to perfect your product. It's reading books on business. It's you know, taking some free online classes. Um, it's you know, working on your ads, working on your writing. This is the most productive time that you can ever have potentially. And it's a time that you can gain an advantage because those other people who are pushing pause, you're going to end up once we we're out of lockdown, you're going to end up so far ahead of them if you actually keep working and improving. I love this concept that we get our highest pay when we're working for free. It's quite counterintuitive. Get a little more granular for me. Tell me about your business and how that axiom holds true for you right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I can, I can show you from my personal experience and also some observations. So in my personal business, before I ever tutored students, I spent hundreds of hours going through past SATs and ACTs and making a very robust uh, curriculum. I didn't take a minimum viable product to market. I said, let me make this great because I care about education. I care about my students. So I wasn't getting paid for any of those hours. And I spend hours per week on the phone with new families explaining uh, the best plan for their kids' SAT and ACT prep. I'm never paid for those, but I'm ridiculously well paid for those hours at the same time. Why? Because people trust me, because I've educated them, because I've shown them that I'm actually an expert in the service that I'm providing. I found that that time that you put in to prepare, you're not paid that minute, but you're paid much, much more. Um, even for students, students, the most they ever make in their entire lives typically is when they're doing homework. Nobody's paying them for that homework. But on average, kids make $298 an hour for every hour they put into homework, $298 an hour. So they spend an hour watching Netflix, that costs them $298 in the late earnings. So really, it's, it's actually true. When you work for free, you get paid the most. So when you bring up that $298, you're talking about eventual earnings once they hit the workplace. So you can correlate the number of hours of education they've had versus their eventual income when they get out and enter the workforce. Precisely. Yep. So you take a college graduate versus a non-college graduate. You take the total amount of increased pay. So for um, a college graduate, they're on average going to make $800,000 more in their lifetime. You divide that by the number of hours the average student uh, puts into homework in college, and that's how you arrive at the $290 an hour. So we're talking a lot about gaining skills, whether it is as a student or as a small business person, but really we're also talking about mindset because it's this shift in mindset of feeling helpless versus feeling abled. Can you break it down further into those hours that you put in? Does it make sense for us more to go for mindset for learning how to be successful or does it make more sense to go after skills themselves? I suppose I would go for mindset first if you don't have because you have to have something that's going to keep you going. Um, you have to have that long-term vision that this is going to pay off, I think, before you're going to be able to just grind it out on hours. Now, once you've thought about, well, what's, what's the best way that I can position myself? Then, like sharpening the axe, right? You're the axe. You're sharpening yourself. Once you figure out how to sharpen yourself, then you can go to work. So that's a great question. I would first figure out what are my passions? What can I, and actually I want to walk back passions. I think a lot of people think, oh, I should go for my passions. What I've found is that a lot of times you become passionate about what you get good at. So if you become an amazing accountant, you're probably going to enjoy being an accountant, I would assume. But if you're not a good accountant, nobody enjoys being bad at things. Yes, you can go towards your passions, but even if you don't um, feel passionate about something, if you think there's something I can get good at, then once you figure that out, then just drive at it. And I bet you will absolutely end up loving to do it because everybody loves to be good at something. There's that line that says, nothing succeeds like success. So once you start succeeding, that just fuels you, motivates you, and you'll become even more successful. I imagine someone could look at your business model, Summit Prep, and say, boy, you're in trouble now that people aren't taking the SATs and ACTs. They're being put off. We're not even allowed to go to a testing place. 
tell me a little bit about how you've been innovating your time. How have you been transitioning Summit Prep to this new world of shelter in place? Yeah, good question. So I think you've had uh, Joshua Sheets on, who runs our radical and personal finance. So in January, he started warning people of there's going to be a pandemic, right? So I was like, let me buy masks. Let me stock up on food, right? So I really believe in preparation. So we started preparing. So even before New Jersey, um, where I'm at, went on lockdown, we had purchased extra monitors for all the tutors. We had purchased computers for them. We had purchased sound insulation panels so they could have a really quiet work environment, even if you know their significant other is in the other room. Um, we have draw boards where once we share our screens with students for Skype or Zoom, whatever we write on our draw boards projects instantaneously on the student's computer screen. So we're talking to them face-to-face. We're pulling up the, the test. We're able to draw on the test. It's the exact same as an in-person session. So we were able to just flip a switch and immediately everything was online. We did have about 10% of our families who said, this is too uncertain for me. I don't know. You know, Really, people can become paralyzed, just like businesses become paralyzed in face of uncertainty. But I think we, were, we have the trust of our families, I think for good reason. We're trustworthy. And so we were able to tell them the truth and be honest. This is the time that you want to double down. And so we had that technology in place to facilitate continuing to do sessions. And then the kids, they had the time because they're not going to sports, they're not doing extracurriculars. So they simultaneously got more time and they saw the value in doubling down. So we've actually seen revenue growth, not decline, especially in an industry where everyone else has just been tanking in the SAT, ACT product industry. Joshua Sheets was on episode 98 doing a special segment on price fixing, uh, which came out last week. And Joshua really was in front of the curve and was thinking about these things in January and February. And it sounds like listening to Radical Personal Finance definitely helped you clarify your goals, but not everyone is that ahead of the curve, what would you tell small businessmen now who are finding themselves in this situation? They didn't pre-plan the way you did. How do they pivot now? That's a good question. You can only worry about what you have control over. So at this point, they might be behind, but I don't know if you listen to uh, the Choose FI podcast, I think it's Jonathan. He likes to say, the best time to invest was yesterday. The second best time is today, right? So yes, you might not have been ahead of the curve, but you can avoid being even further behind it. So what's the best time to say, I'm going to get up off the couch and, well, I probably sit in front of your computer, <laughs> but, but be productive. At a, the very, very minimum, get a book, get great by choice, get built to last, get the e-myth, read anything by Malcolm Gladwell. It's fun. It's stimulating for your mind. Keep learning, keep growing. That would be at a minimum. And then even better would be trying to perfect your services. So, I mean, for me personally, we have an online tutor training platform. We're the only company that I know of that does this. Um, but when we hire a tutor, the first month, 160 hours is just training them on the SAT and ACT. We have over 100 hours of training videos on every conceivable topic on the SAT and ACT. Even though I'm actually busier than normal, I'm also more bored than normal. So what have I been doing? I've been working more. So I'm putting out more training videos, more resources. That's not just going to help my tutors right now because they can you know, go watch those videos. That's going to help my company for the rest of the duration of the company. 
quadratics and functions, they're never changing, right? So the more I can perfect my training on those things, the more my team is going to be improved, the more my company is going to be improved, the more my students are going to learn and succeed in life. I'm positive that every single person can find a way to improve themselves or find a way to improve their business. And a lot of times, ironically, the better that you get at something, the more you see room for improvement is what I find. So just dive in, start working, and I bet your to-do list will actually increase not start shrinking because you'll just get so much energy again from success generating more success and as i listen to you talk about what you're doing for summit prep i think about my 15 year old freshman year high schooler who is getting up at nine o'clock and finished with his schoolwork by 11 with his e-learning and yeah. certainly some of those courses you're putting out and some of those training videos sound like they'd be very appropriate for that age group. There are a lot of parents out there who have their high schoolers and we're all very concerned that this time isn't being used well. So I could see lots of kids, whether they're talking about SAT or ACT prep or just learning basic math and deductive reasoning to be looking for something like what Summit Prep is offering. It doesn't have to be something that they're paying for, right? Again, books. So the foundation of civilization, literally, is communication. So when you read, you become better at communicating, and you're going to use communication in everything. You're going to be better at learning history, at better learning science, better at learning math if you become a better reader. So at the very minimum, I hope that everybody, every kid is at least reading. The next level up would be you know, doing Khan Academy or something like that. Next level up from that is private tutor or class or something, but a very minimum, everybody can be improving themselves during this time. So tell me, where do you think this ends? What's going to happen to small businesses? Just off the top of your head, when do you think we're going to finally be able to leave the house again? And will business be changed for good? I don't know. <laughs> In New Jersey, they're saying lockdown is likely going to last until at least mid-May, maybe June. I don't think the kids go back to school then for two or three weeks in June. I don't think it's worth the risk. I think that really slows the, the reopening, especially when for as long as schools aren't open, I think it's really hard to reopen the economy, frankly, because so many families need to stay home with their kids. So that's a drag on the economy. You know, hopefully we get rapid testing, antibody testing, antivirals, et cetera. But as, it, as it's appearing to me, I don't think most schools are going to go back for the end of this school year. Once the economy does start opening up again, personally, as you know, it's April 15th, I don't know about you, I think the stock market is unexpectedly going to drop more because I don't think people are realizing that, yes, 10% of jobs, 10% of people are now unemployed in three weeks. I don't think those 10% of jobs exist anymore, necessarily. I think that, yes, they might hire maybe half of those people back, but I don't think they're going to hire everybody back. So I think that the U.S. is in for a wake-up call. And I think that some of the programs that they're doing, um, like the PPP loan forgiveness program, I think those are all good. But I don't, I'm not sure if anything is enough to uh, supplement just shutting down the economy for a couple months. Uh, what about you? I think that it's going to be a prolonged course of trying to open up the economy because we aren't really yet creating the rapid testing that we need in the amount that we need. and we also have to have a really robust tracking system. So if we got lucky and the virus disappears during the warm weather, which I don't think it will, 
or yeah. if we get lucky and it just disappears or burns itself out, which is always possible, but I don't think it will, we are going to be at this place where we can socially distance and decrease the morbidity and mortality, but then we have to suffer the consequences of social distancing and sheltering at home. If we then open back up, the only way out is to test everyone often, yeah, as well as to mercilessly track people who test positive and quarantine them and the people they're in contact with. If we do that, we might be able to use short-term shelter-in-place orders in small regions for you know a week or two and then reopen up. And that would help us open the economy up. But I, like you, also think that business has fundamentally changed. And yeah. the way we do business has changed, which all points to this fact that, as you are saying, this is a time to become more robust in your learning, to pivot and to think about ways you can do things differently and more effectively in what might be this new economy. So I think it's a conversation we're all having. It's nice to see that businesses are thriving, not all, but mm -hmm. some, and that those who are trying their best to innovate are reaching some success. And I hope that continues because we all know that in the United States, our small business people really are the backbone of our country. Those are jobs that we create ourselves and we create jobs for other people to help us in those small businesses. And if we want to eventually help unemployment, we not only need the big employers, but we need those innovative small businesses, which sometimes even then become big employers one day. So yeah. I think that the world has changed. I hope we're able to innovate and pivot. The wonderful thing about the personal finance community is you see a lot of people out there who are pushing the boundaries like you with Summit Prep and trying to do that. And I hope that we all find success as well as figure a way around this so that we can go back to some semblance of normal living. It'd be nice for all of us. Absolutely. David Blobaum, it's been great having you on the show. His business is Summit Prep. It teaches ACT and SAT skills to high schoolers, right? Mostly. Yes, exactly. And you can find out more at summitprep.com. Perfect. All right, David, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Doc G. Sorry, I went off into my, I have to tell people about no. these books, Doc G. Yeah, no, no, no problem. <laughs> yeah. Joseph, man, he kind of got you a little off guard with the, what did you learn off of being a Marine? And the, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? I, I feel oh, like that uh, could have come up before. <laughs> yeah. I don't feel like I could talk to you guys about how other people behave until I talked a little bit about why and how you behave. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's that intimate part of that story. You all in your own ways now go out and really help people with these issues. But part of that is because who you are and what you went through. And it's, I, I think it's part of that story. And I think it's so wonderful to have people out there who are not the sales pitchy people, the people who are not that typical Wall Street selling you whatever they need to sell you to make money because, you know, we're really jaded by that by that atmosphere and so everyone people i know so many people who are so afraid of getting taken advantage of that they do nothing with their money at all 
been recording with Joe enough times because, you know, every time you like restart, you're like three, two, one. <laughs> I know. He's totally it's, it's only, gotten it's me. It's Joe's in that. your head. Joe Salcija is in your head. So I know. It. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I'm like, well, here you go. You know, you can cut really easily there because I'm saying three, two, one every time we just yeah. made a cut. <laughs> so that made me laugh because I, I, the first person I heard doing that is Joe. So when you do his panels, right? I'm sure you've done a number of his panels, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.